Go ahead and have your seats, and as you're sitting, let's, let's pray together. Lord, the psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, come on, let's go up to God's house. God, it is a beautiful thing to be in your presence with your people. Jesus, all we have is you, and you are all that we need. And so we pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would bring us under your sway. Father, we pray now that you would orient our hearts and our minds and our souls to you. You would direct our gaze to the beauty of who you are, and you would fill us, Holy Spirit, you would fill us afresh with yourself. We've come to worship you this morning, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three in one God. Be with us now and glorify your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning to everybody who's brave in the cold this weather, and especially if you're our guest this morning, you got to be like a football weather type of seeker. Like, bring me to church. Take me to church. Don't let no cold hold me back. I'm so glad that you're here, and I'm so glad for those of you that are joining us online this morning. If you're a guest joining us online or later sometime this week, welcome. I'm Jason. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're really, really glad that you've chosen to worship with us. In fact, if you are a guest here this morning and have a few minutes after the service, I'd love to chat with you, and if you have time to stick around, please come up and and say hello. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. If you've been here for the last couple of weeks, Brandywine Grace Partners, you know this, we've been in John's Gospel, but this morning we're going to take a short break from the Gospel of John and look at a story that Luke tells us in his Gospel about Jesus. So just a little background here before we get started. At this point, we know from some of the other Gospels as well, Jesus has been spending the majority of his time up in Capernaum, which is a city, a town on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. But now he's heading south, southwest, back to his town of Nazareth, his hometown. Now, we're all from different places. Some of us are local. Some of us, like myself, are transplants. But I want you to think For a moment, let's try to get our minds engaged in the story here. Think for a moment of a time when you went back home. You went back to the place where you grew up. You went back to the places that you knew very well, the people that you knew very well, people that knew you very well. That's what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is going home. He's going back to the places and to the people that he's most familiar with and who are most familiar with him. Let's begin to read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day 
And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Jesus came home. And the message that he came home to preach was an incredible message. It was an incredible message of good news. It was a message of hope. It was a message of freedom. He came home to preach good news. Jesus went to his home church and he preached a sermon from Isaiah 61. He preached a message about God's deliverance, the deliverance that his people, the Jews, had long been waiting for had finally come, and it had come in him. In Jesus, God was coming to help those in need. In Jesus, God was coming to set free those who were enslaved. In Jesus, God was coming to bring justice for the oppressed. This was an incredibly good news type of message. He came preaching, Luke tells us, the year of the Lord's favor. Now, if you're a Jewish person, you would have heard that and immediately thought of the Old Testament year of Jubilee. That's the time in Israel's calendar when all debts are completely forgiven. Like, if you're an insider or an outsider, if you're rich or you're poor, whoever you are, wherever you are, if you are God's people in Israel, you are celebrating Everyone gets a fresh start. Everyone gets a clean slate. Like this was a huge deal. This was a time when one people were gathered under their one God and they were partying together under God's amazing provision. And this was a message of incredibly good news that Jesus was preaching. This was a message that the people knew as good news, and responded immediately, excitedly. Look at what it says. They, verse 22, spoke well of him. They were marveling at the gracious words coming out of his mouth. Now, if you're Jesus' PR guy, this is probably when you kind of put your arm around him and pull him aside. Dude, you are killing it right now. You've totally hooked them. They're marveling at every word that comes out of your mouth. So this is what we're going to do. Do a couple miracles. Let those percolate for a little bit. And then just keep dropping more truth on them. Like, 
I'm telling you, in a day or two, you'll have this entire town. All your neighborhood friends, they're all going to be following you. You're killing it right now. But Jesus isn't into PR stunts. He loved these people too much. These were his friends. This was his hometown. These were men that likely looked after him when Joseph, his father, died. These were women who were like second mothers to him. These were like his friends. These are the men and women he grew up playing with, laughing with, crying with. He loved these people. This message of good news was for them. They needed deliverance. They needed God's help. They needed freedom. This message was for them. Jesus came to Nazareth with incredibly good news for them. How did they respond? Let's keep reading. Verse 23. And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up, Three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Jesus came with incredibly good news for them. And in order to help them see where they needed to be delivered, Jesus lovingly, compassionately, gracefully told them a proverb and two stories. He's trying to help them to see this good news was for them. First, the proverb, physician, heal yourself. In other words, okay, Jesus, you say that you're a prophet, prove it. We heard about what you're doing up there. We heard, all the news about Capernaum has traveled back here. We know what you've been up to. So do some of those miracles down here that you've been doing up north. You say you're a prophet, prove it. Jesus saw that they were trapped in their unbelief. They wouldn't simply believe the message, the word of God from Isaiah that he had just preached to them. They needed some proof. They were trapped, enslaved in their unbelief. Then he tells them these two Old Testament stories of Elijah and Elisha. In both of them, Jesus is trying to get his neighbors to see 
you're, you're acting just like your ancestors. Remember Elijah. Elijah was a prophet coming to preach God's good news to you, to Israel. And there were lots of poor, needy widows that needed God's deliverance in Israel in the time of Elijah, but they would not listen to Elijah. So what did God do? God sent Elijah to Zarephath, to the Sidonians, to the people you hate. That widow, she gets God's help. Why? Because she received God's prophet, she listened to his word, and she did what he said. Same thing with Elisha. Elisha comes after Elijah, and he's sent to God's people, God's prophet, preaching God's word, but Israel wouldn't listen. So what did God do? God sent Elisha to Naaman, the Syrian, who you hate. Naaman listens to God's word, listens to God's prophet, does what he says. Naaman gets healed. The lepers in Israel don't. Jesus is lovingly, compassionately trying to help them see you're trapped in your pride and your hatred. With this, the people have had enough. They're done hearing about the things that they need to be delivered from. And so they try to throw Jesus off of a cliff. Look again at verse 16. Jesus came to Nazareth. Look at verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. He came to Nazareth to set this group of people free. He came to unite them under one good news message of God's amazing grace. And he left and the people were still enslaved in their sin. Friends, I've got a burden to share with you this morning. I have a concern, a deep concern for the church more broadly and for our church here, Brandywine Grace Church. I've got a burden and I'm concerned because I really believe that Jesus is still coming to the people he loves. He's still coming, building his church. He's still unifying us and rallying us around the good news, the gospel of his grace. And I'm fearful that too many in the church are responding just like the Nazareth people did. I still believe that Jesus is coming into our lives looking to free us from some stuff. And I'm concerned for myself and I'm concerned for our church, and I'm concerned for the church that we're not responding well to Jesus. I'm talking to Christians now. I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking to people outside of the church. I'm talking to my brothers and to my sisters. I'm talking to professing Christians And I'm seeing and I'm hearing stories of too many professing Christians getting caught up and being more discipled, as David Platt says, by what the world is doing rather than what the Word is teaching. We're either being discipled by the world or being discipled by God's Word. 
and I'm seeing too many, and I'm being threatened in my own life too often to being caught up in all of the hatred and the pride and the division that's out there and is now seeping into the church. The church is the place where Jesus has brought us together, friends. He's the place, this is the place where Jesus has united us under the gospel of his grace. He's made us one people, one church. And he's not done uniting us and unifying us around the same message that he came to Nazareth with. My friend Rebecca Flack, who many of you know, shared a story with me, and I was listening to it this week. Many of us at this point have heard about or studied or learned about or remember the horrible genocide that took place in Rwanda about 20 years ago. Over one million people lost their lives in about 40 days. There was a fierce battle between the Hutu and the Tutsi peoples. One million lives lost in 40 days. Well, on a recent visit to Rwanda 20 years later, a woman, Danielle Strickland, went to visit Rwanda. And she visited what's called a transformation village. These are villages that the country of Rwanda has established to help the people to see we're not going back there. Like, we're not going to let that happen again. We're going to rebuild. Transformation villages are a key component to a movement called One People. So we're not Hutu and Tutsi anymore. We're one people. We're one Rwandan people. We're united. We're not divided anymore. Well, during the visit, Strickland meets a woman named Grace and a man named John. Grace is the only surviving member in her entire family. Everybody in Grace's family has been killed except for her. Could you imagine that? The trauma and the pain. She's the only one left. Her neighbor is John. Well, John happens to be the man who participated in the killing of every one of Grace's family members. Grace, with all of her pain, And her fear and her trauma agrees with John, with all of his shame and his guilt, to move into the same village. And the Rwandan people say, here's a plot of land and a pile of bricks. Build a new life together. Well, at first, they take their bricks and they divide their land and they work as hard as they possibly can not to see each other. I can't even look in your eyes. They begin to build their separate houses. 
Well, eventually, Grace comes into situations where she can't do things all by herself. And John comes into situations where he needs an extra set of hands just as much. And so slowly, they start to work on each other's homes together. Slowly, they begin to talk with one another. Slowly, they begin to look each other in the eye again. Grace said she came to a point where she saw forgiveness as the only way to survive. She was so filled with anger and fear and frustration and confusion. She oftentimes thought about taking her own life and she realized, unless I forgive, there's no way out of this. And John was constantly tormented with a deep sense of guilt and shame. How could I have done this? How could I have committed such evil? John often thought about taking his own life. Someone came and preached to John the message of God's grace. John, even though you have done incredible evil, Jesus has suffered and died on the cross for that sin. And if you believe in him, he died for you. He rose for you. He ascended for you. And he'll bring you back home again if you would trust and put your faith in him alone. Well, John not only experienced the grace that grace extended to him, John experienced the grace of God in Jesus Christ. John experienced the power of the gospel that not only unites us to one another, but unites us to God himself. And John and Grace learned over time to love one another and to work together. They chose a reconciled life. Doesn't this seem like far-fetched? When you hear that story, it seems like no way. That cannot be true. But it is. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation and it's also the ministry of reconciliation to know that I can be united and reconciled with God and I can be united and reconciled with God's people. One people. One message that unites God's one people in Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus was trying to do in Nazareth, friends. He came to Nazareth to unite people under one good news, God's grace message. They wouldn't let him. Will you? Will I? Will we? It's becoming easier and easier today to become so entrenched in our positions, in our views, in our opinions, even in our familiarity with Jesus. So much so that we just assume that everything that we believe, he agrees with. It's becoming easier and easier to live polarized lives just spending time with and talking with people that think just like we do. Friends, I'm telling you, to live comfortably in polarized, divided lives as a Christian is a total contradiction of the gospel. If we are living comfortably in polarized, divided, argumentative lives, we are living in total contradiction of the gospel. 
We may identify as Republican. We may identify as Democrat. We may identify as Libertarian. And we may identify with these things for good, God-honoring reasons. But above all, we are Christian. The principles of the kingdom of God are our ultimate party platform. Jesus is our ultimate president, and his law is love. We do not all have to agree with each other, but the way that we disagree with each other, Jesus has something to say to us. We are one people in the gospel, and we have to learn how to love each other and to respect one another and to listen to each other even when we disagree. We may have a conviction about wearing a mask. We may have a conviction about not wearing a mask. But my mask wearing or my not mask wearing does not commend me nor condemn me before God. As human beings, we have what Tim Keller says, an innate desire for othering, which means we always try to think of reasons why we are better than others. And we do this with pieces of cloth over our faces. If I wear a mask, I'm better than those who don't wear a mask. If I don't wear a mask, I'm better than others who do. The Apostle Paul dealt with something like this. There was an honest disagreement between Christians in Rome. Some Christians believed, I'm not going to eat meat. Because by eating meat... I'm getting too close to pagan idolatry, and that bothers me before God. I can't do that. And there were other Christians who ate meat and thought, I'm free in my conscience. Like, there are no false gods, and I'm okay to eat meat. Paul said to both of them, the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Then he says this, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Which means, do not for the sake of food destroy the unifying work of God in the gospel. God has made you one people. One People, under the good news of God's amazing grace in Jesus Christ, you are one people. Don't, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. BGC, do not, for the sake of a mask, destroy the work of God. God has made us one people. He has bought and cleansed us and united us in the blood of Jesus Christ. We are his one people. Do not, for the sake of a mask, destroy the unifying work of God. Jesus came to Nazareth to build a new kind of community. He came to people he loved to create a people who were quick to hear, 
slow to speak, and slow to anger. That's the community that Jesus is building here. What would have happened? Think about this. What would have happened if instead of trying to throw Jesus off a cliff, somebody, like a few men or a few women, would have said, Yo, time out! Like, wait a second, do you realize we just went from zero to 60 here? We went from verse 22, all of us speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words, yeah, Jesus, to let's go and kill this guy. Do we really want to do this? I mean, the kids are watching us. This is Jesus. We know him. He grew up here. Do we really want to kill him? Let's take five. Jesus, what are you actually trying to say? What would have happened? I'll tell you what would have happened. Jesus would have set them free. He would have transformed their community. They wouldn't let him. Church, will we? Jesus wanted to rid these people of their hatred. Notice here, Jesus was proclaiming himself as Messiah. Do you catch that? That's not what they got upset about. What seems to have them so upset is that Jesus starts talking about widows from Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. That's what gets them all riled up. Jesus knew that these people had completely lost sight of who they were. The Jewish people were God's chosen people, but not chosen for any other reason but that God loved them. God did not choose them because they were the right race. God did not choose them because they had done enough good things. God did not choose them because they were such good people. In fact, quite the contrary. God chose them because he loved them, and that's it. But instead of God's grace humbling them and making them compassionate towards others, they were filled with pride and hatred. They couldn't tolerate people that were rationally or ethically different from them getting in on God's goodness. They couldn't tolerate that. Now, my friends, my brothers and sisters, I know you. Most of you I know very well. And so I'm not saying this because I think that you are a bunch of racists. But let's be crystal clear. Racism, ethnocentrism, publicly or privately thinking in any way of ourselves superior to people who are different from us on the basis of race or ethnicity is sin that needs to be repented of. It's sin for at least three reasons. We are all people made in the image of God. Therefore, all people in God's image are equal in dignity and deserve our respect. Christ died for all people, all races, all ethnicities. Therefore, all people are precious in God's sight 
and they ought to be in ours. Number three, Jesus commands us to love. Therefore, we should show the same empathy and concern and kindness to others that we ourselves would want to receive. I'm speaking personally now. I'm going to let you guys into where I'm at personally. I admit that until recently, I have not thought about racial issues in our country. I believed I'm not a racist. And I still believe that. I'm not a racist. I know and love people of color, black, brown, or otherwise. And I thought, I'm not personally hurting anyone, so this really has nothing to do with me. I don't believe that anymore. I believe that that is a very selfish, unloving, and ignorant way to think. When brothers and sisters in this church say things to me like, racism is like a bee that's constantly buzzing around my ear and I'm always wondering when the next time is that I'm going to be stung. That affects me. When our black brothers and sisters in this church report that the death of George Floyd incites in them fear and confusion and anger and despair, that's got something to do with me. They're my brother. He's my brother. She's my sister. And the Bible calls me as a Christian to bear the burdens of others because that what, that's what fulfills the law of Christ. Racism for the Christian is not first a social justice issue. It's a gospel issue. Jesus has bled and died to make us one people. One body, and where one part of the body hurts, no matter what color that part of the body happens to be, we all hurt. Where one part suffers, we all suffer. Now there is much, much more that could and should be said here. We are actually planning to do a series in the new year that is going to get us into the Bible's teaching on justice and all the implications that that has for our lives. But my point today is simply this. Jesus has united us all, all races, all ethnicities, all people groups of the world. He's united us all as one people. We are all one in the gospel, and in that gospel, we're called to be marked by love. It's not easy, church. These issues are not easy to address, and they're not easy to work through. But easy is not the top priority for Christians. Jesus did not say, take a vacation and follow me. He said, take up your cross and follow me. Learning how to love people that are different from us is hard work, but not hard work without hope. 
If God can do it in grace and in John's life in Rwanda, I think he can do it here, don't you? He can transform this church. This church could be like a transformation village. I really believe that. And I want that. So I want, I want to challenge us. I want to challenge us to take this simple step of application. Sit down this week. Sit down with a pen and paper and write out Matthew 7, verse 12. And I'm talking to everybody here, like the kids too. Maybe your kids aren't like mine. They never fight. They never struggle with each other. So you, don't, you, can, you can tune out if your kids don't need to hear this. But teens, I'm thinking of you guys too. Sit down with a pen and paper, write out Matthew 7, 12. So whatever you, these are Jesus' words, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. And then honestly think about that. How do I want others to treat me? What do I wish others would treat me like? Well, I want respect. I want them to be kind. I want them to understand where I'm coming from. I want them to give me grace when I'm struggling. I want them to gently correct me when I'm wrong. Write your list and then pray over that list. Lord, would you help me to treat people in my life the way I want them to treat me? Maybe it's a friend or a coworker or a, a spouse that you're having a difficult time with right now. Who is it that thinks differently than you that you're having trouble with? How would it look in your life to treat him or her the way that you want to be treated? We've got to start somewhere. Maybe this is how Jesus wants to make our own lives and the lives of this church a transformation village. I'll have the band come back up. We're going to worship together and to take communion together, but I want to close with this. Friends, there are so, so many, so many, many issues right now that threaten to divide us. But we have to remember that what unifies us is always much, much stronger than what divides us. Always. Jesus has come to us. He has preached the gospel to us. He has rallied us and united us in the gospel of his grace. We are his one people. And so by his grace, let's learn to live like it. Amen? Amen. Amen.